Grace and mercy and peace be with you, my dear friends in Christ, from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. If you were here last Sunday for our rally day kickoff, uh, what, a, what a fun day it was. At least I enjoyed uh, myself. I want to publicly say thank you to all the, the many hands that made that day such a great success. We had so many volunteers participating and uh, just, just making a wonderful fall kickoff. Uh, part of that fall kickoff, as we do each year, as we have the last number of years, uh, we, we've done kind of a fall kickoff series. Uh, and, and so that's what we're doing right now. We're, we're in the second week of a four-week sermon series and small group Bible study called People of Hope. Uh, you can go on our, on our website, copperhoot.org slash hope. Um, if, if, you're, if you miss a week and you want to see a, a sermon that's archived, um, or there are many of you who aren't uh, currently signed up to participate in a small group Bible study, uh, if that's the case, but you want to dig into this material more on your own as an individual or a family uh, devotion, the materials can be downloaded from this website as well. Uh, last week, uh, we began this series, People of Hope, and we're going to be moving hope throughout our bodies in order that we become people of hope. So last week, we started with our heads. And we had hope in the head. And the goal was to define what our Christian hope is. And so here is our Christian hope. Plain and simple. This is our Christian hope. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And Jesus Christ will raise us all from the dead on the last day to perfect and glorified eternal life. This is our hope. Because Jesus lives, we too shall live and be risen from the dead on that last day. Day. This is our hope. Now, as we seek to become people of hope, again, I said we want to move this not just from our heads, but also into our hearts. And so today the theme is hope in the heart. Because frankly, you know, we can know a lot of stuff about the Bible. We can have a lot of knowledge about who Jesus is. We can understand this statement that Jesus rose and we too shall rise. Good. Wonderful. It's good to have it in our heads. But does it actually make a difference for our lives? What about when we face difficulty and tragedy? Does this hope in Jesus actually matter? Does it do anything for us? Does our future reality affect our present reality? Does our future hope affect our present reality? I would say it should, but oftentimes it does not. In our Old Testament lesson today, we heard this uh, kind of lengthy story of the prophet Elijah. Now I want to I want to tell you a little bit about Elijah, but, but first of all, uh, when we began that reading, Elijah sounds really pitiful. He's down in the dumps. In verse 4, you can pull it out or it's up on the screen. Elijah says this, he pleads with God, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father. Here's what's happened. Let me, let me set the stage for you. All right? Just a brief recap. If you went back in your Bible into uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is a prophet, called, and prophets are called to uh, call people to account, especially kings. And so this, this is happening in about the 9th century B.C., about 900 years before Jesus. 
And so Elijah is called to the king of Israel. And at this time, the king of Israel is a guy named Ahab. Ahab is a bad dude. Uh, he is worse than the one before him. He does, as the scriptures say, evil in the eyes of the Lord. And Ahab goes one step further than kings before him. And what Ahab does is he marries a lady named Jezebel. Now Jezebel's dad was king of a neighboring nation where they worshipped a god Baal. All right? God had made it very clear that these kings and these people should not intermarry with other uh, people who worship false gods. Yet, yet Ahab doesn't. He brings Jezebel as queen of Israel. And with her she brings her religion of Baal worship. And so now the king of Israel, instead of being guided by the one true God, is being guided by this false god, Baal. So Elijah is called by God to go to Ahab and say, Hey, Ahab, let's basically have a duel and figure out whose God is real. I'll meet 450 of your prophets up on the town of Mount Carmel, and we're going to figure this thing out. So one day, Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal gathered together on the top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah says, here's what we'll do. We'll each build an altar. We'll each cry out to our God. You cry out to this Baal. I'll cry out to Yahweh, the, the name of the true God. Whoever rains down fire upon our altar, that's the God. Okay? So the Baal prophets do their thing. They build their big altar all day long. All day long. They cry out. They cry out. They cry out. They, they cut themselves. They're, they're desperate. And nothing happens. So Elijah builds his altar, and then he says to those Baal prophets, now come over here, let's dig a trench around this altar. So they dig a trench around the altar, and, and Elijah says, you know what, let's get some water. Let's make this real. So they get some water and dump it over and fill the trench. And Elijah says, how about some more? So they do it a second time. How about more? Third time. The, the altar is soaking wet. The trench is filled up with water. Elijah cries out to the name of Yahweh. Uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and fire rains down upon his altar. Even the stones are burned up. The water is dry. Everything is gone. And Elijah takes those 450 prophets of Baal down into the valley, and he slaughters them. All right? This is a bold stuff, right? But here's the deal. Ahab, the king, finds out about this, tells his wife Jezebel. Now here's the deal. Jezebel has been on a campaign to kill the prophets of God. She's already killed many of them, and there's about a hundred of them hiding in a cave now. And so she wants vengeance on this Elijah guy. And so that is where we find ourselves at 1 Kings 19, is that Jezebel is after Elijah, so he runs and he hides and he says, Lord, just take my life. Just take my life. Get it over with. This is serious stuff. Here's the deal. Elijah has just seen a work of the Almighty God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's watched fire rain down from heaven. And now, one woman, this queen of Israel, wants to kill him. And he runs and he hides. He's afraid. He cowers. He's worried. Frankly, though, so am I. I'm fearful. I get afraid. I, I get anxious. I panic. Don't you? For real, don't you? But, but why? We've seen the hand of the Almighty God. We watched Him raise Jesus from the dead. We have eternal hope that Jesus is going to come and raise us all from the dead. We know our future is set. So why worry? Why panic? What happens to us 
If we have this hope in Jesus, what's our deal? <laughs> I read this statement the other day um, in the Book of Concord. If, if, you, didn't, if you don't know much about uh, the history of Lutheranism, uh, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the Book of Concord. Some of you are familiar with Luther's small catechism. The Book of Concord has a whole bunch of Lutheran writings uh, by Martin Luther and the other reformers that kind of say this is what Lutheran doctrine is. Here's a, here's a statement uh, from the Book of Concord. It says this. Because in this life we receive only the first fruits of the Spirit, and our rebirth is not complete, but rather only begun in us, the struggle and the battle of the flesh against the Spirit continues even in the elect and the truly reborn. For one can detect not only a great difference among Christians, one is weak and another in the, is strong in the Spirit, but within each Christian, who is at one moment resolute in the Spirit and in another fearful and afraid, at one moment ardent in love, strong in faith and hope, and in another cold and weak. We'll leave that up on the screen. You can read it again for yourself. But if you think about this, maybe, you, maybe you've had this experience before, uh, where maybe in, in your experience of Christianity, maybe it seems as though there's somebody uh, in the faith that seems strong, uh, resolute in the spirit, always kind of hopeful people, and you go, wow, I really count on those people to assure me in my weakness, right? But the, but the saying also says that each one of us, even those who are truly saved Christian people, have at these moments great, great bouts of strong hope and great moments a strong weakness. Now, why is this again? And it, and it says this in the first scene. Because in this life, we receive only the first fruits of the Spirit. And our rebirth is not complete, but only rather begun. So what does this mean? It means that right now, we have not yet been fully perfected. Okay, let me say that again. Right now, in our lives, we have not yet been fully perfected. There will come a day when Jesus returns in the future, when he raises us from the dead, and we will be perfected. But right now, we have the first fruits of that promise. We have been created by God. We have been claimed by God through the waters of holy baptism. He has begun this good work in us. It has begun. So we have a, a now reality, but we also have this not yet reality. And so we live in this tension, knowing that it will come fully true, but it has not yet. But our hope is so sure and certain, as we talked about last week, anchored in this future hope, this, this reality that we will rise from the dead. Last week, I began my sermon, if you were here, I began and I ended, kind of with the imagery of a, of a ship in the midst of a storm. And, and we talked about, you know, how ships have an anchor, and how in the midst of a storm, a ship might seek refuge and, and put its bow into the wind and, and set its anchor and hold on, even though the storms still rage outside. And I said that's kind of like our, our Christian life. I want to end again today with the imagery of a ship, but we're going to talk about it just a little bit more. Now, perhaps some of you know this and, and some of you don't. But do you know what the name for this room is? This room that we're gathered in today? I think uh, by, by popular terminology, oftentimes we call it the sanctuary, 
right? And, it, and that's a fine and decent word to call it, okay? You're not necessarily wrong, but technically this area up here in church architecture, this raised area, uh, is actually called the sanctuary. Sometimes also known as the chancel, all right? Not to confuse terms, right? But this is technically called the sanctuary, where the congregation sits is actually called the nave. The name. And the word name comes from the Latin word novice, which means ship. Ship. Now, Christians have been talking this way actually from the very beginning of Christianity. That as the church, as the Christian church here on earth, we are like being on a ship. We come here gathered together as the people of God on this journey of life. Knowing that the storms of life rage, but here we come to interact with the Almighty who comes to meet us in a very real and present way today through his word and even through his sacraments. Jesus is here to meet us, if even just for a moment, to calm the storms of our life. Now, why is this called the, nav, the, the nave? Well, it's not even just called the name, but actually in church architecture, many churches have even been designed to look like a boat or a ship, albeit one that's upside down. Take a look at the roof. Now, maybe not so much in this place, but kind of. We'd have kind of a wide, almost pontoon-esque type of boat here, right? But maybe you've seen it before in some other churches where it's a little more, little more steep of a peak. And oftentimes in older church architecture, the beams and the rafters are exposed. And that's intentionally done so that when you look up, it looks like you're looking at the, the underside of a boat. The part of the boat that would be in the water. Now, as we continue this image on, right, on the front of your bulletin is a picture of an anchor. And last week we talked about the fact that we have a sure and certain secure anchor of hope in Jesus. So if that's the bottom of our boat, and we were to drop anchor, where does the anchor go? Not down to the depths, but up into heaven, where Jesus has gone before us, into the inner place, going before us, and he will come again for us. So here we are. I don't know if you can imagine that picture, but think on that. I think it's a pretty cool image. We come here today knowing the storms of life to meet and interact with the real God who comes to us in this real presence and with real people to build up and support and encourage one another by the power of the Spirit. My friends, this is true for us today. I boldly declare to you again, your future is set. Jesus is coming for you, and he will raise you from the dead. And on that day shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. My prayer for you today is that this hope is more than just knowledge in your head, but actually the truth that resides in your heart. So as you face the difficulty and tragedy of this day, you may have a sure and certain, a firm and secure anchor of hope in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Next week, as we gather together, we will move from uh, hope in the head, hope in the heart, to hands of hope. As we go as people into this world that oftentimes has no hope, we go with hands of hope. I pray that you come back next week again. You can follow all this at copperluth.org slash hope if you're just visiting with us.
Go in God's peace and in his strength. Have sure and certain hope in him. Amen.